Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from, bear, uh, from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain, her, obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she, when he saw, she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, "Sorry, Sarai said to Abram, "May the wrong done to me be on you." I gave my servants to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Sarai said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He should be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage of Scripture, we see faithless human beings. But we also see in the midst of this your faithfulness as it shines forth. Your faithfulness to Abram and Sarai. Your faithfulness ultimately to your people. But we also see your faithfulness as it is, is given even to those who are outside the covenant. Lord, for we see that you are a faithful God. Help us, Father, to trust you. Forgive us for our failure to commit our plans to you. Forgive us for our attempts to fulfill your promises in our own strength. Lord, help us as a people of faith to walk in faith for your glory. Amen. 
call me Ishmael. So begins the narrator in Herman Melville's epic tale of Captain Ahab and his doomed expedition to kill Moby Dick, the great white whale. Ahab admits to his first mate Starbuck and the crew that he is motivated by, by vengeance for the loss of his leg. Ahab says, I, Starbuck, I, my heart is all around. It was Moby Dick that dismasted me. Moby Dick that brought me to this dead stump that I stand on now. Aye, aye, he shouted with a terrific, loud animal sob like that of a heart-stricken moose. Aye, aye, it was that accursed white whale that resied me, made me a poor pegging lubber of me forever and a day. And tossing both arms with measureless imprecations, he shouted out, aye, aye, and, and I'll chase him round good hope and around the horn, round the Norway maelstrom, round perdition's flames before I give him up. And this is what ye have shipped for men, to chase that white whale on both sides of land, all over the sides of the earth, till he spouts black blood and rolls fin out. What say ye men, will ye splice hands on it now? I think you'd look brave. Aye, aye, shouted the harpooners and seamen, running closer to the excited old man. A sharp eye for the white whale, a sharp lance for Moby Dick. Now this novel, Moby Dick, is a metaphor. Captain Ahab represents rebellious humanity in his attempt to kill God. In the words of theologian Jim Hamilton, Melville is showing us how people who refuse to submit to God Almighty engage in a hopeless attempt to kill God and to have their own will done in life. Well, you might be thinking, well, it's never even entered into my mind to do such a thing. Really? Once you lived in utter rebellion against the Lord, your every breath was rebellion against him. The bent of your life was spent in choosing your will and your way over and against God's will and God's way. But if you are sitting here this morning as a Christian, you still do this. You, you still choose your way instead of God's. Whenever you reject God's plan in favor of your own, or try to fill, fulfill God's plan using fleshly means, you are following in the limping footsteps of Captain Ahab. This morning, as we look at Genesis 16, we're going to see how each of the human beings in this narrative, Abram, the patriarch, Sarai, his wife, and Hagar, the Egyptian servant, all rebelled against the Lord. We might be thinking, well, well, hang on a second. Didn't we just read in the last chapter how, how Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness? Yes. But in this passage, we see how even Abram, the man of faith, faltered as he fathered Ishmael. Let's recap about what's, what's been happening in Abram's life thus far. When we first met him at the end of, of chapter 11 and to this point at the beginning of chapter 16, we see, we see quite a progression in, in Abram's life. But it, it reads like a roller coaster of, of spiritual victories and spiritual defeats. As Abram lays hold of God's promises and then lays them down again in moments of sinful frailty. We first meet Abram in a spiritual low. 
living with his kindred in a, in a pagan land and serving pagan gods. When chapter 12 then rises to the heights as, as Abram is, is promised by God, as God calls him, God promises Abram a land and a seed and Abram obeys and sets out for the land of Canaan. But then in the, in the second half of chapter 12, we find another low point as he leaves the promised land for, for Egypt during a famine and then, and then tells his wife to lie to Pharaoh in order to protect his own skin. Sarai is taken into Pharaoh's harem and Abram stands by and does nothing. Only the Lord's, the, the Lord's intervention as he afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, plagues, only the Lord's intervention delivers Abram and Sarai from this catastrophe. But then in chapters 13 to 15, we, we begin to rise again to the heights as Abram retraces his steps back to the promised land. And in the face of conflict over the land, he defers to his nephew Lot, allowing him to choose whatever land he wants. And then chapter 14 goes higher still as, as Abram goes into battle with invading kings to save Lot from captivity as, as, he, as he, along with the encouragement of Melchizedek, stands against the, against the temptation of the wicked king of Sodom. The crescendo is reached in chapter 15 where the Lord reassures Abram that he's going to fulfill his promises to him, promises of a land and an heir. And here not only do we see that, that pivotal declaration that the Lord counts Abram's faith to him as righteousness, that Abram is justified by faith, but we also see the astonishing cutting of the covenant. So here the Lord is represented as, as walking along a path between this, in the middle of the, sacrif the sacrificed animals while Abram is, a, is a deep, in a deep sleep. This is, as we discussed, an administration of the covenant of grace. The Lord here is binding himself to an oath whereby he calls down judgment on himself should he fail to keep the promises. And it is, in fact, since he walks alone while Abram sleeps, vowing to uphold both sides of the covenant. Saying that whatever happened to these animals, may it happen to me if I should break the covenant. But then after that climactic passage, in chapter 16, there's a precipitous descent. And this one is going to have earth-shaking consequences for those immediately involved, for the nation of Israel, and consequences that will send aftershocks out into human history to this day. There's three scenes in this drama. In each scene, we learn about the characters involved. In scene 1, verses 1 to 6, we see human faithlessness. And then in scene 2, verses 7 to 14, we see the Lord's faithfulness. And then in scene 3, verses 15 to 16, we see unresolved conflict that is going to be resolved later in Genesis and is going to continue to be resolved throughout human history. So first of all, scene 1, human faithlessness in verses 1 to 6. As chapter 16 begins, we're reminded of the obstacle to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. The fact that Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This problem was introduced back in Genesis 11.30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So just as, as the famine in chapter 12 and the threat of Pharaoh is a test 
for Abram. Sarai's barrenness is now a test for Abram. Barrenness is a recurring theme in Genesis. Sarai, Rebekah, and Rachel are all barren until the Lord intervenes. This sets the stage for another miraculous birth around 2,000 years later. But now at the end of, of verse 1, after being reminded of Sarai's infertility, we're introduced to Sarai's female Egyptian servant, Hagar. Could Hagar be the solution to this dilemma? Could she, a, a, an Egyptian probably acquired by Abram on his foray into Egypt, could she solve the problem? Sarai thinks so. Frustrated by the apparent failure of the Lord to deliver on his promise to Abram, Sarai devises her own plan. She says to Abram in verse 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. Notice there that, that Sarai is blaming the Lord for infer her infertility. Now she's technically right. It is the Lord who opens the womb. She has not had any children because the Lord has not allowed her to have children. But she did not understand God's character in not granting her her desires. She didn't understand what the Lord was doing in her life and in Abram's life. Yes, the Lord is sovereign, but he's also wise and loving. And of a failure to consider who God is, Sarai was judging the story by the middle. And she was judging the Lord. She was implying that the Lord neither saw nor heard their concerns. And so they had to deal with it themselves. Fellow Christians, Whatever is happening in your life, you need to preach this to yourself. You need to preach to yourself that God is sovereign and wise and loving. You need to interpret your circumstances through that grid. Yes, God is in control of all things. But if he doesn't do something that you want him to do, or if he does something that you don't want him to do, remember that he is wise, his understanding is beyond measure. Psalm 147, verse 5. J.L. Dagg said that God is infinitely wise because he selects the best possible end of action. God is infinitely wise because he adopts the best possible means for the accomplishment of the end which he has in view. The wisdom of God, Dagg says, is an unfathomable deep. Friends, God's wisdom is most powerfully demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross was his plan from eternity past. That he would deliver his son into the hands of wicked men, so purchasing your redemption and mine. God's wisdom is most powerfully demonstrated in the cross, and so is his love. God's, God loves you so much he sent his son to die for your sins. God loves you even more than you love yourself. Think about that. I'm not sure about you, but I know I love myself a lot. God loves you infinitely more. He loves you so much that he sent his holy and righteous eternal son to pay the penalty for your sins. 
Remember, his love is infinitely greater than yours and his, his wisdom is infinitely greater than yours. Always. So God's plans are always better than your plans. Whatever happens to you in life, you need to remember these facts. So here Sarai acknowledges the Lord's sovereignty over her infertility, but she doesn't entrust the situation to him. His sovereignty wasn't the problem. The problem was that his sovereignty conflicted with her desires and with her timetable. Now, in that day, in the ancient Near East, it was a serious predicament for a man to be childless because he would have no heir. But for, for women, there was the added social stigma of failing in what was considered to be one of the primary duties of a wife. So Sarai's plan for, for Hagar to conceive a child by Abraham follows what was an acceptable custom in that day. A, a number of, of ancient documents describe the practice where where a, a woman gives her servant to her husband as, as sort of a, a concubine in order to be a surrogate mother for to have children on her behalf. Any children that were obtained by that servant would be considered the, the children of the infertile wife. But we can also see this in the Bible, don't we? In fact, four of the, of the twelve of Jacob's sons, four of the twelve tribes of Israel were born to servants of Rachel and Leah. But despite the fact that this was an acceptable pagan custom, and despite the fact that this is described in the Bible, there is no sense that the practice is acceptable to the Lord. In fact, it's, it's not in line with God's plan for marriage as, as being the, the union of, of one man and one woman. But how does Abram respond to his wife's scheme? Look at the end of verse 2. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He went along with it. Look at verse 3. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. We need to stop there for a second. Husbands, this does not mean that you are not supposed to listen to your wife. She is your helper. She is a gift of God to you. And she has an often helpful perspective on the situation, especially if you have washed her in the water of the word as you are commanded to do. But you must also be very careful. Don't just passively accept what your wife says. Her input might also be a temptation to you that you need the Lord's help to overcome. So women, you have a responsibility to make sure that if you are giving counsel or you're saying things to your husband, that, that they are right and biblical. And husbands, you have a responsibility before God to, to examine these things and, and, and see if they are right and biblical. Again, don't just passively accept what she says. If it does not line up with God's word, you must reject it. You must reject it. And your wife will help you to grow in leadership. Whatever situation, your wife will help you to grow in leadership as you lead her biblically by God's grace. Sometimes when, when the Lord doesn't answer a, a prayer right away, believers get impatient, don't they? They, they? they try to take matters into their own hands. 
I, I spoke last week about when the fact that when God delays um, in answering prayer, even when it's a promise, that he's usually waiting in order that through the trial, he's going to sanctify you. Or if he is not giving you something you want, it's, it's because he knows what is best for you. Because he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. So, but God wants in that waiting to, to cause you to, to lean on him, to, to lean on, on his promises, to trust him more. One example of, of this where, where, where people tend to do things their own way is, is in the church and in the building of the church. Jesus Christ promised that, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not, would not prevail against it. And this is the, the, the attempt of man to, to build the churches has led to all kinds of, of man-centered methods and means. Think of, of Charles Finney and, and using, using a psychology and using the arguments of a lawyer to try to bring people to repentance. Or think about the seeker-sensitive movement or, or, the, or the social gospel. All of these man-made schemes are, are, have filled churches with people who aren't really part of the church. But it's not just in the church. How many times have, have you gotten impatient and, and tried to take matters into your own hands? I, I've seen people, and I've done this, been, been eager to see somebody, somebody repent or somebody change, and, and I've, I've tried to pressure them into repenting as, as though I was the Holy Spirit. I've seen other people who are, are so eager to get married that they have sinned and married an unbeliever. We, we can all succumb to this. We can all succumb to trying to take matters into our own hands and do things in a fleshly way. And by doing so, we are rebelling against God. Friends, the primary issue here is not Abram's infidelity to Sarai. It is infidelity to the Lord. Neither Abram nor Sarai trusted the Lord, so they took a shortcut. They used fleshly means. Now, without justifying their behavior at all, on, on one level, I get it. It's, it's now been 10 years since, since God had made that covenant with, with Abram. 10 years since God had made the promise and there, 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 there would be a child that would come from Abram's loins, and there's no hint at all that this is being fulfilled. Granted, the Lord did not say specifically that Sarai would be the mother of the child. But nonetheless, there's, there's a lot of evidence that reveals the Lord's negative assessment of their behavior. The first reason, and I believe this is the most compelling, we find this in the New Testament in, in Galatians 4.23, where, where Paul assesses the plan for us. Galatians 4.23, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now we're going to spend more time on, on Galatians 4 in a few minutes, but where Paul goes on to use this as an allegory. But here he's saying that the will of man, the sinful will of man, produced Hagar's child. Second, from what the Lord has done in, in chapter 15, where, where God had made that covenant with, with Abram, and it's just such a, a, a miraculously and, and shockingly glorious way. It seems that something extraordinary is going to take place, that it's going to be the Lord who's going to intervene, that the Lord is going to do this, that they're not going to have to resort to doing it themselves. 
Third, the, the way that, that Sarai takes initiative to solve the problem instead of, instead of waiting for the Lord is reminiscent of Abram's actions in Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20. In fact, that bad decision likely led to this bad decision. Fourth, notice how Abram and Sarai objectify Hagar. Neither, neither one of them even mentions her name. She's only my servant or her. And that contrast is going to be telling because of, of what happens later on in this story. Fifth, consider the language that's being used here. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram. That should remind you of something. Genesis 3, verse 6 Eve took the fruit and gave some to her husband. Eve took and gave to Adam. Sarai took and gave to Abram. It's the same terminology. Not convinced? We'll think about Genesis 3.17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Adam listened to the voice of his wife. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. They both followed their wives into sin. And so what's implied here is that, that Abram and Sarai are repeating the same sin as Adam and Eve in the garden. They're doubting the word of the Lord. Sixth, the consequences of their scheme. Yes, Hagar is going to conceive through this ill-conceived plan, but it's going to bring about disastrous results. Disastrous results. We see these consequences in verses 4 to 6. Well, first we see that, that Hagar gets pregnant. Well, that in itself is, is not a negative consequence. Finally, at the age of, of 85, Abram's going to be a father. Now, I'm about to be a father again at, at almost 50. I'm an old dad. Bouncing children on my knee is likely to break something. I'm an old dad, but I'm not that old. I'm not 86. We need to acknowledge the fact that the Lord opened Hagar's womb, but he has not opened Sarai's. So we've seen this. The, the, the Lord is indeed sovereign. This child is no accident. There are no accidental children. Hagar's child is part of the Lord's plan, but not as Abram and Sarai had planned. And almost immediately, the negative consequences start to roll in. All three of them, Hagar and Sarai and Abraham, all exhibit sinful behavior. This created conflict in the home that is going to lead to the pregnant Hagar fleeing into the wilderness. First, when Hagar realizes that she's pregnant, she exhibits sinful pride. She looks with contempt on Sarai. This is the, the same verb that's used in Genesis 12:3. The one who dishonors you, I will curse. Hagar is dishonoring Sarai. Have you, have you ever looked down on someone, maybe made a value judgment or even a, a spiritual judgment on someone because, because you've succeeded and they have failed? Well, Paul condemns this sort of attitude in the church in 1 Corinthians 4, that none of you should be puffed up in favor against one another. In verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Hagar received this, this gift from the Lord and this child, and she's, she's acting as though, as though she has been the one who has miraculously 
produced conception. This is the Lord who's done it. Furthermore, do not judge the story by the middle. We say this again and again. The, the Lord is not finished yet. Yes, we're, we're going to see that, that Hagar is given a high honor. But we need to, to look and, and see how this is interpreted in, in, the, in the New Testament. In Galatians 4, verses, uh, verses 21 to 31. Galatians 4, 21 to 31. Paul here is, is using Sarai and Hagar as a metaphor for, for those who attempt to earn salvation through the works of the law and those who receive salvation by faith. Those who receive salvation by faith. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul explains that, that Hagar represents slavery to the law. But in verse, verse 26, Sarah represents those who are free. Hagar is outside of the covenant. Sarah is under the covenant blessings of God. Furthermore, in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrews hall of faith, it is, it is Sarai or, or Sarah who's listed. So again, in, in, by using that, that, this narrative as an illustration, we're, we're seeing that, that Hagar and those who come through Hagar are outside of the covenant. They are not part of the covenant blessing of God. Yes, they are blessed by God, but they are not part of the same covenant as the covenant that God made with Abram. So Hagar exhibits sinful pride. And then Sarai exhibits sinful blame. Again, she plays the blame game. This is something she appears to be quite good at. She blames Abram, verse 5. May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. She's blaming Abram, but it was her idea. What would happen if the Lord judged between them? He would find them both guilty. But here she's passing the buck. She's blaming her husband for what she had concocted. Wives, I wonder, have, have you pushed your husband to do something that is sinful? Well, that's wrong in and of itself. It, it's wrong in and of itself to, to push your husband to do anything. But especially it's wrong to push your husband to do something sinful. Do you ever blame others when, when your ideas don't work out? You ever try to pass the buck and, and put it on somebody else's plate? I think this is a temptation that we all face sometimes. So we've, we've seen that, we, we've seen that, that Hagar um, sinfully is, exhibits sinful pride and then Sarai exhibits um, sinful blame. But things continue to escalate as Abram exhibits sinful passivity. He weakly defers again to his wife. This has been a pattern with Abram. Yes, he did show leadership in his battle with Kedorlaomer. But remember Egypt? His failure to lead put his wife in danger. And here he should have stood against his wife's fleshly plan. But, but again, he doesn't lead. He, he simply says, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Now, Abram should have stepped in back when, when Hagar started to dishonor Sarai. But now here, his wife, Sarah, is asking him for help, and he defers to her. 
Husbands, have you checked out of your responsibility and left your wife to deal with a problem? Maybe it's a failure to, something as, as small as, as a failure to take responsibility for something in the home. Maybe it's a failure to take responsibility for a financial problem. But have you failed to take responsibility spiritually? Have you, have you failed to take responsibility spiritually? Have you failed to lead your wife and your children spiritually? Does this sound familiar to you? Your, your children are fighting. And your wife says, Can you, you know, I've been dealing with this all day. Can you please do something here? And you say to your wife, well, they're your children. You're their mother. Deal with it. You deal with it. I'm tired. This is what Abram did. He is deferring to his wife. He is failing to take responsibility. He is sinfully passive. So we have Hagar sinfully blaming so we have Hagar sinfully in sinful pride. We have Sarai sinfully blaming. We have, we have Abram sinfully passive. But the conflict now reaches a boiling point as Sarai erupts in sinful anger. She deals harshly with Hagar. Now, sinful anger comes from getting what you don't want or not getting what you do want. Getting what you don't think you deserve or not getting what you do think you deserve. Now, if you have any understanding of the gospel, you know what you deserve. I know what I deserve. We don't deserve respect from anyone. But we still demand it, don't we? We still demand that people treat us the way that we think we should be treated. But here we have Abram again doing nothing. Even though Hagar was his wife, and the mother of his child, even though he had a, a covenant responsibility to them. He should have stepped in, but he didn't, and Hagar fled. And Hagar is being sinful here too and running away. She's, she's exhibiting sinful self-protection. People run away from marriages and they, they run away from churches. Friends, don't run away from conflict. Take responsibility for your part and deal with it. These things, this sinful pride and, and sinful uh, false blame and sinful anger and sinful complacency or sinful passivity, sinful running, they're a danger in any family. And they're a danger in any church. We need to commit before God to stand against these things in our own lives and to lovingly be reconciled with our brothers and sisters. We need to, to protect the family that God has given us. We need to protect the church that Christ purchased with his blood. Lest a root of bitterness spring up and defile many. Friends, I've said this many times, but every relationship that you are in, apart from your relationship with the Lord, is a relationship between two sinners. Every conflict that you engage in is because you both want to impose your will and neither one of you is concerned with the Lord's will. Whenever you act without faith, whenever you try to accomplish things in your own strength, there will be conflict and there will be negative consequences. Gordon Wenham says, Thus the scene ends in the total disaster for all concerned as Hagar lost her home, Sarah lost her maid, Abram lost his second wife and child. But into this mess comes the Lord's faithfulness 
the Lord's faithfulness in verses 7 to 14. The angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. Now this is one of the routes from, uh, from Canaan to Egypt. Hagar was headed home. She was headed back to Egypt. At this point, she'd probably traveled for, for several days, reaching the, the, reaching the region of Kadesh. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her. Well, who is the angel of the Lord? This is the first use of the word angel in the Bible. An angel is a messenger. And in this instance, the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. You can see this later on, how, how she names the Lord. She says, um, she says in verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. So this one who appeared before her is God himself. God himself. And he, he calls her by name. Remember, Abram and Sarah haven't done that. But here the Lord is calling her by name. He asks her where she's come from and where she's going. Well, she, she answers the first question. She says, she says, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. But she doesn't answer the second. She doesn't tell the Lord that she's headed back to Egypt as if he didn't know that. The angel of the Lord commands her to go back to Sarai and to submit to her. But with that command, he also gives a promise. He says, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. So in, in sending her back with this promise, he's actually assuring her of good treatment at the hands of Sarai. Because she's being, being elevated as she goes back with this, this promise in hand that comes from the Lord himself. This promise reflects the promise that the Lord had given to Abram in the previous chapter, but this is not the same blessing. It's not the same blessing. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord tells her that her child, that her child will be a boy and that she will call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. And this is because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And then we hear Ishmael described in, in verse 12, he'll be a, a wild donkey of a man. This foreshadows Ishmael's nomadic lifestyle. He, he will be wild, but he will also be free. He's also going to be hostile to those around him, and those around him will be hostile to him. This last phrase can be translated in the, is translated in the ESV that he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen, or in the, in the Nazbi, that he will live to the east of all his brothers. Well, in Genesis 25:18, we see that they're both true. They're both true, that, that Ishmael's offspring settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the, the direction of Assyria. That's, that's east of, of where the, the children of Israel lived. He settled over and against his kinsmen. He, he's also against his kinsmen. We're going to see that throughout the scriptures as, as the, the sons of Ishmael are at war with the sons of Isaac. He, he's, going to, he's going to break the bonds of family loyalty. He's going to be at war with his brothers. He's going to follow in the ways of Cain. Not only will Ishmael pose a, a threat to Isaac, but the descendants of Ishmael will continue to be a thorn in the side of the descendants of Isaac. Ishmael, like Isaac, actually confirms the divine election 
of the appointed branch. There is war between the seed of promise and the seed of the rejection of promise. And this conflict between the seed of Isaac and the seed of Ishmael continues to this day as Arabs, the descendants of Ishmael, and Jews, the descendants of Isaac, continue to be at war with each other. And this conflict, it, it, it still exists at this very moment. And it's caused, caused no short amount of, of bloodshed and sorrow. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, is, is said to have been of the line of Ishmael. And the Quran twists Genesis to make Hagar the heroine of the story and Ishmael the legitimate heir. And it makes Isaac the illegitimate heir. So, so Muslims claim the promised land as theirs. And it goes back to Abram's sin with Hagar. Now, if that's not an accurate Bible prophecy, I don't know what is. And we see this worked out in our very day. But consider the irony of an Egyptian being mistreated by a Jew. As we'll see later in Genesis with Joseph's experience as, as he is sold into slavery in Egypt by Ishmaelites. A narrative that is picked up in, in Exodus 400 years later with Israel having been in slavery in Egypt for that whole time as a direct fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis 15. But there's another irony here. Look at verse 13, the verse that I mentioned a few moments ago. Hagar called the name of the Lord to, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. El-Ra'ah. Hagar is the only person in the whole Bible who gives a name to God. God has heard her. I know that God has seen her. And she's going to name the, the well where they, they took place. The, the well is going to be called Bir Lahai Roy, which means the well of the living one who sees me. So God himself appears to this helpless woman and cares for her. He sees her and hears her. He reveals himself to her. He blesses her with the promise of many descendants. He promises a future for her son. He names her son, even though she was outside of the covenant blessing. This is amazing. Sarai wasn't faithful to Hagar. Abram wasn't faithful to Hagar. Hagar wasn't faithful to them. But God was faithful to Hagar. In fact, no one in this story is faithful apart from God. Sarai wasn't faithful to Abram. Abram wasn't faithful to Sarai. Neither one of them were faithful to God. What a gracious God we serve. Friends, we are not faithful to each other. We are not faithful to God. Yet God continually shows himself faithful to us. The narrative closes in verses 15 and 16. The final scene with, with unresolved conflict that opens the doors for, for future resolution at the hands of the Lord. Hagar is now back with Abram. She, she obviously tells Abram what the Lord has done for her and said to her because now we see Abram calling the boy Ishmael. 
Abram loves Ishmael and takes responsibility for him. This is going to be confirmed in the next chapter when Abram says to God at the promise of Isaac, he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He's interceding for Ishmael. He loves him. Yet even still, Ishmael's name would be a continual reminder of Abram's failure to remember the faithfulness of the Lord. Ishmael would become a constant threat to the chosen line and remains so today as a threat to Israel's existence, but especially since the majority of persecution of Christians that we see around the world is at the hands of Muslims or the descendants of Ishmael. But how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? We do not respond in the way that, that Abram and Sarah responded to Hagar. A, a Christian responds to these things in, in love and forgiveness, intercession and prayer. Because God is faithful to us. Three times in these two verses we're told that Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. But there's no mention at all of Sarai. The narrative ends with Sarai still having no child. I wonder, does God have you in a place where all you can do is stand still and see the salvation of the Lord? This passage teaches you that you must not only trust God's promise, but you must also obtain God's promises in God's way by the method that He says we are to obtain these promises. It teaches that the faithfulness that God's faithfulness does not depend on you, but on Him. It depends on His faithfulness to His promises. His faithfulness goes beyond your faith. Though Hagar and Ishmael are, are rivals for Sarai and Isaac, they are blessed by the Lord because of their relationship with Abram. Though Hagar the Egyptian was treated harshly by Sarai, and though Israel will be treated harshly by the Egyptians, the Lord remains faithful. Again, Hagar represents the old covenant, Mount Sinai, the earthly Jerusalem. Sarai, on the other hand, represents the new covenant, the heavenly Jerusalem. Hagar's son Ishmael represents those born of the flesh. Isaac represents those born of the promise. Abram and Sarai, looking for the promised heir, create a chain reaction of consequences by taking matters into their own hands. Again, though their actions are in line with the customs of the day, they are out of line, contrary to God's will. In their scheming, they implied that the Lord was, was unfaithful, that he neither saw nor heard. Yet even here, he proves that he both sees and hears, that he is faithful, even as he responded to Hagar's affliction and promised her an offspring through Abram's son Ishmael. Friends, when you take things into your own hands, God remains faithful, but you will experience consequences. And here God's faithfulness is on display yet again. Here is it's, his faithfulness is extended even to one outside of the covenant family. Call me Ishmael. You are Ishmael too. You were once outside of the covenant. Your hand was against the children of promise and against the Lord. Yet, if you are here in Christ, you are now Ishmael for a very different reason. You are now Ishmael because God hears and sees, because God hears your prayers. 
The Lord heard Hagar's cry for help. Sarai should have cried out to the Lord. He, he would have heard her. And he hears your cries too. Don't succumb to the temptation to take matters into your own hands through dwelling on anxious thoughts, through anger, manipulation, or other sinful schemes. When you're in distress, cry out to the Lord. He hears you. He sees your need. And he will fulfill his promises to you. Let's pray. Arah, you are a God who hears. Lord, you are a God who sees. Lord, you are the omniscient one. You are the omnipotent one. You are working out all things according to the counsel of your will. Lord, you are sovereign. You're also loving and wise. Lord, your ways and your will are infinitely greater than ours. Help us by your grace and for your glory to submit to your will, to submit to your timing for the accomplishment of the things that you promise. Lord, help us in the things that we desire to, to hold on to them loosely, that we may entrust these things that are so precious to us into your sovereign care, for you are indeed a faithful heavenly Father. If we pray this, through the name of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice for our sins. Amen.